Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste and welcome. It's really nice to be back again. I've been away for a month. I really feel like I went away. I was kind of diving into writing and part of what I was so aware of was uh, just how much was changing in the midst. I left when it was summer, I came back and it's a different season. And on many levels I left and I just uh, found out I lost a very dear friend. Uh, During the time I was away another dear friend told me they were pregnant and then another one's become grandfather. And then in the larger world our world is imperiled, you know. It's a very, very scary time globally. We've had horrific tragedies from man-made natural disasters to man-made disasters, recent loss in Las Vegas, so changes a lot. Um, hence, uh, the, this week and this class and the next one will be on impermanence. Uh, the title is The River of Change, Bringing a Wise Heart to an Impermanent Life. I ran across this, a letter from Abraham Maslow, famous humanistic psychologist. I thought I'd start with this. He had a a near-fatal heart attack, and this is a letter he wrote right after. He said, the confrontation with death and the reprieve from it makes everything look so precious, so sacred, so beautiful, that I feel more strongly than ever the impulse to love it, to embrace it, and to let myself be overwhelmed by it. My river has ne'er looked so beautiful. Death and its ever-present possibility make love, passionate love, more possible." So how many, when you listen to that and you sense death, really sensing the possibility of death makes love more possible, how many does that resonate for? Can I just see? Is that something that Yeah, I know it it does for me. Um, And I know how many of us have been right there at the edge of the world when we've had a major loss and and sensed both the the poignancy of the depth of the sorrow and right side by side some luminosity, something very mysterious and beautiful both. So we'll be looking at how we relate to change, how we relate to loss. We'll look at change both in a kind of, um, what I think of as radical impermanence, that microscopic, can we sense into the moment-to-moment change that's going on in a very immediate way, to the broader sweeps of changes in our lives. And how do we relate to change? I mean, for most of us there is programmed in some resistance and tension when that change seems to signal threat. I mean, it's just part of our psychobiology. But how much have we been able to recognize that and in some way open ourselves? So that'll be the kind of the invitation to look at. And I really do hope you'll, um, this class and next, 
let it be close in in your life, this examination, because we all have places that we've hardened, we've hardened ourselves so we wouldn't have to face the, the change that's going on for us. I know for myself that there's some realizations that repeat over and over and one of the ones that is most, you know, full and intense and big is that every time I, my heart gets broken open by loss there's more of a um, attunement to what it means to be unconditionally loving every time. And, and yet I know that for many when we talk about opening to loss and opening to change there, there can be a misunderstanding. It's almost like, okay, change has happened, I lost this job or I lost this relationship. And, it can, and opening can have a feeling of um, resignation or passivity like, um, this disaster happened, okay, we're accepting it. And so I want to, right from the start, say that my understanding of really opening our hearts to this changing life, this, you know, the sorrows and the joys, is what enables us to then respond to our life with courage. And I'll say really in a very particular way, if we hear news, like there's been a, a mass slaughter of humans in Nevada, in Las Vegas, and something in us really gets the realness, like that could have been my son or my sister, and sees the faces and gets the real ouch, the pain of it, like this is real, then it's a natural response to want to make a difference in some way to prevent others from suffering more. We don't want those kind of weapons to be available. We act more. So the kind of opening to impermanence I'm talking about directly leads us to courageous engagement with our life. It lets us live more fully, more honestly, more true to our hearts. So impermanence, the looking at it, the uh, practices of impermanence are central to almost every spiritual and religious tradition I know of in some way. They're like right at the heart of it. And because impermanence is the nature of reality, it's the nature of nature. And so to open to truth means to open to that it's all changing, it's all moving, um, that our body is replacing its cells with new cells at a rate of, a mil- of millions per moment. Millions per moment. That we develop, we're continuously developing through a lifetime, changing beliefs, changing you know, our outlooks, changing our behaviors and so on. And that everything in the universe is changing, whether it's galaxies or trees or whatever, every body in the universe arises out of the void and plays its time, keeps on moving and dissolves back into the oneness. And most of us get impermanence. We know the seasons are changing and we know things are happening mentally. But as soon as it has to do with this body, 
or a body that we love, all of a sudden it's not part of the natural flow of the universe. It's like it's me and it's not okay, you know. It's, it's so interesting. This is uh, from the Bhagavita. This, it's the place where Arjuna is talking with Lord Krishna. He says, what's the most amazing thing you've seen created on this earth? The most amazing thing. And the response is that human beings can see people all around them aging and die and think it won't happen to them. <laughs> amazing. So here we are. And uh, it's at the center of all all of us, and it's at the center through our whole life we see it, and for some it's through lifetimes. I saw this cartoon of these two monks and they're kind of giggling, <laughs> and one saying, ha ha, you tell that one in every lifetime, ha <laughs> ha it never gets old. <laughs> so it can go through lifetimes. In our contemporary culture, aging, sickness, dying, rather than being a natural part of things, in some way has this overlay as bad. And I know for many people, and especially when I talk to women about it, aging has this kind of feeling of being embarrassing, or being in a kind of an insult, or something that we're basically fighting. I don't know, I'm not going to do a hand raise on this one. (laughs) I'll raise my own hand. I know what that one's like. And... And sickness is something we sometimes get subtly ashamed of, which is so sad. And that one I know big time. I've gone through enough rounds of it to know that on some level it's not just taking it personally but thinking I did something wrong or it reflects badly on me. And then dying, you know, it's like it all has this, this kind of, in some way, this covering of it's not okay. Joyce Sufin writes, this is called Living in the Body. Body is something you need in order to stay on this planet and you only get one. And no matter which one you get, it will not be satisfactory. It will not be beautiful enough, it will not be fast enough, it will not keep on for days at a time, but will pull you down into a sleepy swamp and demand apples and coffee and chocolate cake. (laughs) Body is a thing you have to carry from one day into the next. Always the same eyebrows over the same eyes and the same skin when you look in the mirror and the same creaky knee when you get up from the floor and the same wrist under the watch band. The changes you can make are small and costly better to leave it as it is. Body is a thing you have to leave eventually. You know that because you've seen others do it, others who were once like you, living inside their pile of bones and flesh, smiling at you, loving you, leaning in the doorway, talking to you for hours, and then one day they're gone, no forwarding address. So this realm we're exploring is something we mentally get, we emotionally can resist, it's scary, it's mysterious as all get out, I mean, it's like you can't understand it in a conceptual way. So it's disturbing and it's reality. 
and it's a reality that when we have the willingness to open to profoundly changes our entire being. It awakens us uh, to really who we are that's larger than the changing flow. So we'll look at it now, our relationship to change and loss. And one view is, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, humans are uniquely aware of the inevitability of death. We might not consciously keep in mind it's true for moi, but we get it in the sense that it expresses itself as anxiety. And we, we have this feeling like around the corner something could be too much to handle. Do you know that feeling? Like you're kind of tensing against what might be around the corner? That there's sometimes a sense that, you know, I dodged that bullet, you know, but in not too long, you know, the other shoe will drop. God, I'm mixing metaphors terribly, aren't I? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's like the sense that something's going to go wrong. And that's our, like our nervous system uh, intuiting impermanence. And so we have a, um, our, our survival system has its very primitive rigged reaction to any threat that we experience, that we kind of cling on to what gives us a sense of comfort or safety or gratification and tense against uh, what might not. I remember a story of Ajahn Chah, he's a um, Buddhist monk from the forest tradition in Thailand. And he used to kind of walk around the temple grounds and when he'd see somebody looking like they're having a really hard time, like they're suffering, he'd go up to them and kind of pat them on the shoulder and say, must be very attached. (laughs) Because isn't that what it is? That the more we're kind of gripping on to our existence or defending our existence, the more we suffer. So we see it in a lot of different ways. Uh, You know, the sense of um, the ways that we try to hold on tight or prevent the inevitable. You know, I talked about women, but it's not just women. And one one story, when Jim hit 45, he had a midlife crisis and decided to change his lifestyle completely so he could live longer. And he went on a strict diet, he jogged, he swam, he took sun baths. In just three months' time, he lost 30 pounds, reduced his waist by six inches, expanded his chest by five inches, new wardrobe, slick car, got a Mazda Miata, you know, so on and so on. Reinvented himself. So swelt and tan, he decides to top it all off with a sporty new haircut. After that, he steps out of the barber shop and he gets hit by a bus. And so as he's lying dying, he's saying, God, how could you do this to me? And the voice from the heavens said, well, to tell you the truth, Jim, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> okay, so it's... it's Not the greatest example of resisting impermanence, but for now. So we have this, this humans have this heightened self-awareness of of our mortality. And that same self-awareness, when we deepen it, really, helps us to recognize how our survival system is keeping us in suffering and helps us to wake up which is really what we're going to be exploring. 
that we can bring our mindful awareness to our strategies of avoiding and grasping in a way that helps us to break those patterns, interrupt them, and really open to the changing flow and not keep trying to control it. So that's where we're going to look. So the first step is to get familiar. What is your pattern for trying to manage impermanence? You know, it's just one way of putting it. A metaphor that I like, I, I find this helpful because I spend a lot of time by a river, is to imagine, you know, this river of life is moving through us at all, all the time, but we tend to remove ourselves from it and we kind of create like a, it's like creating a tidal pool where we're kind of wall out the whole river and we kind of try to manage things in that little tidal pool. And because with the tidal pool it's blocking the whole flow, things can get filled with algae blooms and get stagnant and so on. But that our life gets kind of small and the more we wall off the flow of impermanence, you know, the more controlling we are, um, the more unwilling we are to live in uncertainty, you know, uh, the more we get rigid and static and it's suffering and those, but we're really playing out fully the uh, management strategies. So what are they? I mean, we can see them on a societal level that when people get afraid, this is, and now I'm talking, you know, in the culture, there, there are certain management strategies to deal with that fear and one of them is to create an enemy. And we see it over and over in history, don't we? You know how humans get scared and they actually get whipped up into fear and then that's the enemy. That's how people in control and in power uh, get people to, in, in their domains to go to war, you know? Get them scared, they'll create an enemy. Basically, when, in a societal level, when people get afraid, they build walls. Okay? They build walls around their tidal pool to keep others out. They build walls against others within. In other words, within your own tidal pool you'll create another tidal pool that's separating out because uh, to try to protect yourself you have to put others down or feel dominating or superior to them. We create other and we build walls in our heart. So what happens on an individual level? We're wired to protect ourselves physically. So we encounter impermanence and encounter a threat and our muscles tighten. And they tighten over and over again in time so that we actually are not even aware physically that our posture has tightened and gotten armored in protecting ourselves against impermanence. You know, our shoulders go up, we go forward, we're tensing. That's our, our body's way of creating the walls, okay? We do it mentally, our vulnerability management strategy mentally is to leave our body and spend a lot of time in our mind obsessing, overthinking, overfiguring, blaming, judging. It's a lot of obsessing we try to control other people. That's a big one. 
when we are trying to control life, our, our controller tries to control others. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old child in her basket, and as they passed the cookie section, the child asked for cookies, and her mother said no. And the little girl immediately begins to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Ellen, we just have half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. The guy passed the mother again in the candy aisle. Of course, the little girl began to shout for candy. When she was told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. And the mother said, there, there, Ellen, only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. The man again happened to be behind the pair at the checkout, where the girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there would be no gum purchase today. The mother patiently said, Ellen, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Ellen. The mother broke in, my little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Ellen. So some of our control strategies are for others, and of course we also are... (laughs) Okay, Ellen, three more aisles to go. (laughs) In a big way, uh, I think one of our biggest... Again, I'm calling these vulnerability management strategies. A big way is to try to to blame ourselves. it sounds like, well, why would we do that if we're already feeling bad? But blaming ourselves gives us some sense that we can control and change things. Uh, one uh, student, she's in her early 70s, I think, uh, talked a few weeks ago to, very overwhelmed at work, very anxious, and noticing kind of a cognitive deterioration that she's afraid is going to affect her capacities at work. And so there's this fear coming up, you know, I'm not going to be able to do my job right, and I might, and she's single, not going to be able to really take care of myself. And, and the emotion that came up with that was shame. You know, the sense of um, impermanence of, you know, my mental capacities and the shame that in some deep way this shouldn't be happening. Like something's wrong with me that this is happening. And so impermanence very, very personal. And rather than, you know, just opening in a, in a kind way to, oh, this is hard, bad me. The other thing we do with impermanence to try to manage it is just blaming other people. One man uh, blaming his employees and his partner just found he was in a kind of chronic, chronic irritation and blame. And when we investigated together, he, he got under it and he had this sense of this fear of failing at work and also his body. He just had a hip replacement and couldn't exercise and was feeling something didn't work with and he was feeling very vulnerable. And it was kind of like he said, it's like being on the savanna and being the weak one in a, in a herd and about to be plucked off. And so he's just, it just his vulnerability strategy, being angry at everybody. So again, I'm just naming them because what, what is ours? Like, how do we try to control things? How do we try to manage things? I often think of John O'Donohue has this phrase, he said that we're so 
busy managing our life so as to cover over this great mystery we're involved in. And I, and I can feel it in myself. I can feel when I'm anxious and busy in some way. I'm, you know, kind of like skimming the surface, trying to keep everything together. And it's like I've completely separated from just moment to moment this astonishing universe. It's like whenever I lose that sense of amazement, like, wow, I know I'm, I'm in management mode because it covers it right over. So it's important to know that we chronically overestimate how much we can manage and control of this existence. There's a very narrow band we can manage. The big stuff, like aging, sickness, death and other people's behaviors are way, way out of our control. We can't do anything. So, again, with the tidal pool, you know, it's like we think we're, we're creating this little container but the river can flood, wash everything away, or the river can go really, really low and everything dries up, or, you know, stuff happens. So the inquiry for us, and this is where we'll spend the second part of the, this talk, is given that, how do we, in the face of inevitable change, what can we take refuge in that's true, you know, that, that really allows us to um, navigate in permanence in a way that's, that wakes us up, that's graceful, that's heart-opening? And where we come to, and we're just the most basic kind of um, principle in our teaching, is that we awaken these two wings of presence. And I, and I, love, the, I love the metaphor of two wings, that, you know, in order to fly and be free we need the wing of mindfulness or understanding. So we see what's happening. Okay, can we see that we're in some way tensing against something around the corner? Can we see that we're controlling? Just that, that recognizing, that witnessing. And then the second wing is this tender-heartedness that, um, that embraces what we see with kindness. So it's not like we analyze our, our management strategies and get down on ourselves. It's more like, oh, of course, this organism's trying the best it can. Can we be kind? So the most basic level of our training, if we want to begin to open to impermanence, is to wake up out of thoughts and come into our senses. That's the ground level. And I think in almost every meditation training you can get, on some, in some way there is a way of practicing that moves us from being inside the storyline to being in touch with this living, moving, changing aliveness. What keeps us in the tidal pool is thinking. As soon as you open to the, the space between the thoughts, as soon as you inhabit that pause, you're no longer living inside a tidal pool, you've opened yourself to the river. That's the core of the training. 
And gradually what happens is we start being able to tolerate the groundlessness and the uncertainty of letting it all happen. Okay, that's as succinct as explanation as I know in terms of opening to impermanence. Come out of the thoughts which keep things static, okay? Thoughts are representational. Come into this wild, changing flow of experiencing and gradually get the knack of tolerating not knowing, uncertainty, not controlling, just being. Let's just practice that for a moment, because that's the ground level. Let me invite you to, uh, yeah, just if there's anything in your lap you want to put down, let's just take a, a couple of minutes. You might consider this a pause with the intention of opening to this river of change. As your body settles a bit and becomes still, you might sit down into your body as if you're letting go into the aliveness. There's a moment-to-moment feeling of opening to the sensations in your body. Sometimes it helps to soften the hands so you can really contact the aliveness in the hands. Sometimes we have to relax a bit to feel the moving sensations even because we're so frozen and rigid by habit so you might soften in the shoulders. Feel the movement and aliveness of energy there. Loosening the belly. begin to sense this field of sensation including sound listening to and feeling this moment-to-moment flow It's quite natural to keep pulling away from it into that tidal pool of thoughts. So we just relax back. See if you can sense how everything is moving. Is there anything holding still inside your body? Is there anything in the field of sound that's holding still?
If you can let go and be the flow. there's a vulnerability or difficulty that's hard to be with, let it be tenderly, gentling in, relaxing with. Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you'll find a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll find a lot of peace. If you let go absolutely, you'll find absolute peace and tranquility. I take a few full breaths and as you're ready, opening your eyes, coming back. This very ground level practice of waking up out of thoughts and coming into this river of changing experience, um, we develop a kind of strength in it where it becomes more and more familiar, uh, that sense of, of really resting in, uh, in a moment-to-moment experience. And as we do, there is a, a sense that we can trust it. It's kind of like when you first are swimming and you first float and you realize, wow, this life holds us up, you know, the, the water does hold me up. It's like you can relax more and more over time into the changing flow. And then what happens is when things get difficult, there's a little more capacity to rest in it. But I want to take the last bit of time to explore what happens when we are facing the changes that are uh, really challenging and our system is really tensed against it. How do we work with it then? That'll be the last piece we'll explore tonight. And one of the stories that has struck me over the years, and this, this I was leading a weekend retreat, uh, gosh, it was probably about ten years ago, and a woman uh, came and her husband was dying and he had actually wanted her to come to the weekend just to kind of help her find some support and resources and centering, they decided together they weren't going to have a priest come and that he really wanted her to accompany him. So um, towards the end of the weekend she pulled me aside and she said, you know, I am really afraid I'm going to fail him because, you know, this is like the biggest thing I've been ever asked to do. Um, And then she asked me what she could read or study on how to accompany someone who was dying. 
and like, you know, dying 101, <laughs> Buddhist dying 101. And I, my basic response is really um, just offer him your love, just love him. You know? And I did share with her because um, they were Catholic that because I had just recently done a weekend, uh, a number of us from different faith traditions presented on compassion. Father Thomas Keating was there and he had shared the words, I consent. He said, if you can face things on some level, say to the life that's presented, I consent. It's like, yes, you know. It's like you're opening your, your cells and your heart and your being to the life that's right there. You can find in the midst of things a, a beautiful presence. So I shared those words and, and that was what she brought home. She was, her intention was to try to open to what was going on and love him well. And she described one evening that he was talking about dying with her. And she said, oh, honey, today's been a really good day. Let, let me make you some tea. And as she went to make the tea, everything in her went, oh, I blew it. Because she felt more distance in those moments from having cut him off. Like he, he wanted to talk about dying and she was making it all right, you know. And it was in those moments making tea over the, the tea kettle that she prayed, please, please, may I truly open with presence to what's happening. May I truly love him through this. And that deepened awareness. She saw her, her vulnerability avoidance strategy, which was staying busy, okay? Trying to make things okay, trying to do things. She was a doer. And um, she saw it, and she could feel in her body the distancing. Because when we create the walls to try to make ourselves safe, we're a million miles from the other and from our own hearts, right? So from that moment on, it was like I consent went to a whole deeper level. It's like the difference between mentally whispering yes to something and having your whole being just truly open to the life that's here. And she said that in that, in some very deep place, she would consent to the fear she was feeling and to the utter feeling of not knowing and uncertainty and how to, how to work, how to be there for him. And she'd be opening to the, you know, of course, to the, the movement of the grief that was there and whatever came up. And she said, in that consenting, in that yes to the changing movement of life, she said she found she did know how to respond to him. She knew when to be quiet and when to sing softly to him and when to climb into bed and hold him and when to just be the kind of the space around him that was very still. She knew intuitively because the reality is that when we stop fighting the river and just become the river, the river knows how to move around rocks and how to be in a spontaneous way. And there's another knowing she had, and this is what she wrote to me. She said, and this was a you know, week or so after he died, she said, he's gone, but the field of loving, who we really are, is always with me. what she discovered in that 
letting our heart break open was that openness that, that knew who they were beyond their forms. And I think those that have um, lost dear ones can sometimes sense how that is, that there's a, a, the profound sorrow of missing the form, but also some deep truth that we're in the field, in this field of love together. That is the gift of opening to impermanence. It's, it's realizing who we are beyond the forms that are changing. But there's a training, and the training is, for her, I consent, in some way being able to stay with what's happening. One woman uh, who is a, a Dharma teacher, uh, when she was dying, wrote this. She said, My days are short, and as I grow weaker I experience so much gratitude for my meditation, not only the joy and ease it's brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting and every fearful fantasy and every pain and ache I sat through and every itch I didn't scratch was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now as I face my death. Let me invite you to reflect for a moment and you might close your eyes. And so we listen to these words of really how when we deepen presence we begin to trust the flow. And we know for within our own hearts that we're on a path of deepening trust and we all have ways that we, that we resist. Those are, our, those are really our, uh, our portals for learning, wherever we're still resisting. So you might reflect for yourself on how you feel you're relating to areas of change or loss, Maybe there's something going on right now or something you're anticipating. There may be a loss in relationship, maybe death of a loved one or dissolution of a marriage or maybe some conflict or maybe how you're relating to your own aging or death, how you're relating maybe to ways you haven't felt you manifested your potential. That's a kind of way, a place of loss. There may be something to do with work or some, some sense of impermanence and the way you're relating to what's happening to our earth, the destruction of our larger earth body. Or maybe how you're relating to the changes and losses to those that are most vulnerable humans and to other species. So you might just sense for a moment how do you relate to the areas of loss in your life? Perhaps pick one, one area of loss. Are there ways you're trying to manage it? Other ways, instead of 
opening to it that you're either blaming yourself or blaming another or trying to control others to get lost in thinking and obsessing what is it that you're unwilling to feel? in other words, what wants acceptance, inclusion? What happens if you imagine opening to the different dimensions of this loss with deep kindness, really letting the river move through you? You can continue with your eyes closed or if you prefer opening your eyes kind of sensing that there's a um, there's an attitude that, that lets us have the courage to move towards opening to the losses and it really has to do with this being willing to be uncertain to not know And when we start to open to them, and when we start to really let the river move freely through us, we find that we get more and more fearless. Our heart gets fearless. We have what we get, what one teacher called a a heart that's ready for anything. So, just to kind of wind up here, there's consequences to not opening we stay small in that kind of uh, that tidal pool that keeps us separate well there's gifts to opening to being willing to look right now as you are as you're listening and say oh well this is an area that deserves my attention and to opening and the gifts are what I want to kind of close with and one of the gifts is as Maslow talked about at the beginning that when I started the talk is that when we sense the realness that it, of loss, that it's going to go we actually start loving more fully we remember what matters one other friend who had serious cancer and knows it probably will recur knows she could go at any time she said, finally I'm arriving in my life and she said, I understand now what namaste means that by realizing she's going to die it has let her look at herself and others and see the sacred see the light that's shining through because if you know you're going to die you say, okay, what matters? well, I want to see the truth of who you really are I want to see that light we, stop, we start fixating on the, um, on the what's wrong and we open to the depth of the purity and the light I want to understand the truth I want to be with truth so we start seeing what's there in each other 
I understand namaste. Thich Nhat Hanh, at the um, closing of the only retreat I ever went to with him, and it was like probably 25 years ago, he taught a hug that I thought was just the most powerful experience. And I went with my dear friend Luisa Montero Diaz. We drove down together. She's a fellow teacher. And we hadn't had much time to hang out over the last while and thought it'd be fun to do this retreat together. And so she was my partner with the hug. And the way the hug goes is first you bow and say, Namaste, I see the divine in you. I see the light that's living through you. So we did that with each other. And then we held each other. And the way you do this, with the first breath you reflect together, you're breathing in, breathing out, I'm going to die. And then you breathe in and out, second breath, and you're going to die. And then the third. And we have just these precious moments. When we remember impermanence, when we're willing to open to the losses, we open to the love. And if we're remembering these moments matter and we don't mess around, we just want to be here for them and love in them. So that's one of the great gifts. And another great gift I'd like to mention is that when we start really opening and letting this universe live through us, there's uh, the way Sogyal Rinpoche put it, and I think he, it's a beautiful question. He said, if everything is changing, then what is true? And when you start opening to the river living through you, you start sensing the space it's happening in. And you sense the stillness that's aware of the moving river. And you sense the silence that's listening to the sound and you start intuiting a formless and loving awareness, a timeless awareness that's more the truth of who we are than any story we could ever tell about ourselves. So we become the space the river is moving through and the river. And in knowing that, we truly have a fearless heart. We truly get to live the moments, not tensing against what's around the corner, but totally engaging, you know, with courage, with heart. So with that, I'd like to invite you to close your eyes, take a moment for a final, final few breaths and a pause. You might imagine that hug I described. Just bring somebody to mind. And imagine bowing, looking in their eyes, namaste, seeing the goodness, seeing the beauty. holding that being in your arms and reflecting on the truth that this body, mind, being you call self is here for just a while. That this other being that you're holding is here 
for just a while. You're going to die and they're going to die. And you have just these moments. Be aware of what your heart cares about. Aware of your own beingness when you contemplate the truth of impermanence. From the poet Hafez, a poem called Deepening the Wonder as a way of closing our reflection. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The permanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and our eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, her face would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. All I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. Namaste and blessings. For more talks and meditations, and to learn about my schedule or join my email list, please visit tarabrock.com.